0: Let's give attention to God's word now. Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, Do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Mark 13, 13. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would hear the longing, the desire, the need of our hearts. Father, we are often confused. We get distracted. We lose sight of what we truly need. But in every child of God, there is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is a desire to know to hear what God the Lord will speak. There is a desire to walk in the way of righteousness. There is a desire to please and glorify our Savior. And so, Lord, behind all the chaos and conflict of our hearts, we pray that you would hear that God-given desire, that you would strengthen it, and that you would answer it today through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. This is a little bit of a somber passage, isn't it? It seems kind of dark and a little bit disquieting. You think about that phrase, the beginnings of sorrows. Well, that sounds ominous because that sounds like, well, there's more to come. There's still a middle before you get to the end. And then, of course, when it talks about being persecuted, about being beaten in the synagogues, and then the knife is twisted even further, so to speak, when it talks about family conflict, about these divisions. Brother will betray brother. A father will betray his child. Children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Well, that sounds pretty bad. If you can't count on your family to be loyal to you, to value your well-being more than whatever is going on that's causing this kind of persecution, you're in bad shape. At that point, who can you trust? Where can you turn? So this is quite a difficult Emotionally speaking, I'm not saying it's unclear, but emotionally speaking, this is a difficult, this is a disquieting passage. Now, of course, I hope you remember from last time that in approaching Mark 13, we have to keep three things in mind. We have to keep more than three things in mind, but for our purposes, there are three things that are exceptionally relevant one is, it's very clear that the Lord Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. You notice that's emphasized in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. So the temple is in view while Jesus is giving this discourse. So the disciples are not going to lose sight of what is uppermost in mind. But as we saw last time, the destruction of the temple, in one way, it really happened when the Lord Jesus was crucified. He explains that to us in John chapter 2. The destruction of the physical temple in AD 70 was sort of the aftershock or the consequence of that. It was the symbolic demonstration that, yes, the old order was finished. The temple had no more place, no more standing. God's purposes, God's plan had moved beyond that. But then, of course, the destruction of the old order, judgment falling in that way, judgment falling on Christ, judgment falling on the expired and now useless old order, demonstrated or said something about the end of all things, the end of the world. And so as we work through this passage, it's helpful to keep those different layers in mind so that we don't run into any extremes and also so that we get a little bit of the depth and richness of what is being taught here. I do think it has reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but that's a long time ago, and yet the passage remains relevant to us in our own time. Some of the details may change. I personally do not expect ever to be beaten in a synagogue, for instance. I'm not saying I won't be persecuted in some other way, but I don't think that physical chastisement, being whacked with a stick inside a synagogue is exceptionally likely to happen to me. That doesn't mean that something similar to that, something equivalent to that, would never happen. Just that the precise details are very likely to change as time goes by and as circumstances change. Now, hopefully you also remember that... I explained that the way I approach this passage, the real thing to watch out for is what the Lord Jesus tells us to do. That is what we most need to walk away from this passage understanding. And so here in our divisions, every one of them has a command, and then there's also a reassurance. There's a command, and there's comfort to help us keep the command. So in the first section, in the beginning of sorrows, which we could look at as running from verse 7 through verse 10, what is the command? The command is, do not be troubled, from verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Now, let's think about that for a second. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. Is that still relevant advice? Yes, it is. Do you still hear of wars and rumors of wars? Are there wars happening now? And are there other wars that seem to be looming on the horizon? Yes, absolutely. Should you be troubled? No. The command of the Lord Jesus remains relevant. There is never a time where the Bible says, okay, now panic. The Bible doesn't say that. It says, do not be troubled. Now, that doesn't mean there's no danger. Notice how the Lord Jesus goes on. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The rumors of wars, they're not always true, but sometimes they turn out to be right, at least in the ballpark. We don't get all the wars we're told will happen, but we do get some of them The Lord Jesus is not saying, don't be worried because nothing bad will happen. Don't be worried because there will never be any war. He says, don't be troubled. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. However, those things are not signs that the end of the world is going to be tomorrow. As long as the world continues, there will be seed time and harvest, and there will be wars and rumors of wars. We're not going to get away from that. There's... There's no effective way to prevent that. There's lots of things that could be done that would prevent it, but people aren't going to do those things. Not enough people, not consistently enough, not for enough of the time. Don't be troubled. Such things must happen, and they do not mean that the end of the world will be tomorrow. You notice he specifically says that. The end is not yet. The disciples ask him about When all things will be fulfilled, and they probably put together the end of the world and the destruction of the temple. But the Lord Jesus says, the end is not yet. Now, it's not just wars. There's also natural disasters, earthquakes, various places, famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. In other words, there are other sorrows. There's all these calamities that involve a lot of people, Things over which we have very little control. They happen all the time. They will continue to happen. Those are the beginnings. They're not the end. There's more than that in terms of sorrow and trouble and distress. Well, against that backdrop, the command, do not be troubled, is a pretty challenging command to keep, isn't it? And if I said to you, don't worry. There's going to be a lot of chaos. There's going to be a lot of disasters. You are going to suffer. And that's just the beginning. Don't worry, be happy. You may wonder what in the world I'm thinking. If this is my bedside manner, maybe I need to go back to seminary and learn how to be a more compassionate pastor, right? But you wouldn't say that to the Lord Jesus, and he's the one who said, bad things will happen, don't be troubled. Why? How can he say that? The end is not yet. There's some reassurance there. The Lord's faithfulness is going to continue through all of this chaos. He will get us to the end. We don't need to be in a panic that the end is tomorrow. I mean, in one sense, we're looking forward to the end, right? But for today, for all the chaos, for all the distress, the Lord has offered us this comfort. We don't need to catastrophize. We don't need to take what's happening now, which is... In some sense, fairly normal, and blow it out of proportion. Fortunately, there's more comfort coming as we move on to the prevalence of persecution. Now, here in this section, the command is watch out. Watch out for yourselves. Now, it would be easy to understand that in terms of be careful be on your guard, don't let yourself come into trouble. I don't think that's the primary reference. I don't think that's the thing that is uppermost in the intention of the Lord Jesus when he says that. He's not saying, make sure you avoid being persecuted. He's saying, be on your guard, that persecution doesn't push you in the wrong direction. Watch out for yourselves, they they will deliver you up to councils, you will be beaten in the synagogues, you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The command is watch out, be on your guard. Persecution will come in one form or another, and persecution has a tendency to make us be quiet. To make us keep our heads down. To make us be discreet. To silence our testimony to the truth. But what is the purpose of being brought before councils and hailed before the synagogue authorities? It is precisely for a testimony to them. Precisely so that there will be an opportunity to share the word of God with the people who are doing the persecuting. Notice the mindset that the Lord Jesus is inculcating here. Should we be quiet and keep our heads down in order to avoid persecution? No. When we are brought up on charges, when they're ready to kick us out of the synagogues, figuratively speaking, that's an opportunity to speak up. We often wouldn't look at it that way. It is interesting that mention of being beaten in the synagogue, the way the synagogues did their discipline. If you did something you weren't supposed to, They could kick you out of the synagogue and then nothing else happened except you'd been kicked out. Or they could beat you with 39 whacks with a stick and you could stay in the synagogue. So at this point, it looks like people are choosing to stay in and taking their beating, taking their lumps, so to speak, and remaining. But... They were not going to be quiet. And so, of course, ultimately, you would get kicked out of the synagogue if you got beaten and still continued to do what they'd beaten you for. Well, at some point, they are going to expel you. You remember this happened already in John chapter 9, where they kicked the blind man out of the synagogue and where his parents refused to give answers to the questions because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. So there is persecution that will happen even before kings and governors. So now he's not just thinking about in terms of within Judea, within the land of Israel, within the Jewish system and setup, but even outside. And you can see all of that verified in the book of Acts, can't you? Where they encountered hostility and persecution from the synagogue and then also from the civil authorities. Well, what's the encouragement here? Well, I think you have it there. You will be brought before kings and ruler, r- rulers and kings for my sake. Why is this happening to us? It's happening to us for the sake of Christ. There's a meaning, there's a value, there's a purpose to it. And more specifically, it's a testimony to them. The gospel will be preached to all nations. So, this command to watch out for ourselves tells us we need to watch out for ourselves that our goal, that our desire, is for Christ and his gospel to be preached. That we are willing to work and to sacrifice, and yes, to suffer for that goal. Now, if we don't care about that goal, then this reassurance, this comfort does nothing for us. (coughs) If somebody said to me, well, you know, you have to suffer, but it is for the prosperity of a Company of some giant international corporation, you know what? That really doesn't comfort me at all. If you say you're suffering so somebody else can get rich, that's not helping. That's not encouraging me. That's not motivating me to persevere and to endure. But if you say your suffering contributes to the witness of the gospel, okay, now we're talking. Now I can see the value in it. Now I can persevere. So this command also tests our hearts. What do we care about in this world? What do we value? Do we value our ease, our safety, our prosperity? Do we value our comfort? Do we value our respectability? Or are we the servants of Christ? Do we understand that this world and everything in it is passing away, is fading, and is what we really value, making Christ Known. If that's what we care about, if the proclamation of the gospel is our big goal, well, then this will be a significant comfort. How have Christians who have undergone great persecution and tremendous suffering done it? The thing that has motivated them, the thing that has comforted them, has been the opportunity to bear witness to Christ, to demonstrate by patient perseverance and sufferings that the grace of God is sufficient. And how many of them have boldly, repeatedly witnessed to their persecutors? You see it already in the Apostle Paul. He's in chains, and he's standing before kings and governors, and he says, I wish that everybody here were all together like I am, except for this chain. He's bearing witness to Christ. He reasons with the authorities about sin and temperance and judgment. He proclaims Christ. And because of that, it's worth it. And what was true of Paul has been verified by martyrs again and again. You might remember when the English martyrs Hooper and Ridley were burned at the stake. And Hooper, I believe it was, said to Ridley, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. We shall this day by God's grace light such a candle in England as shall never be put out. What comforted him and encouraged him in that moment where he was about to be burned alive. He was bearing witness to Christ. It supported the preaching of the gospel. Now, I don't think any one of us are right on the point of martyrdom. And so maybe we haven't been given the grace to see things clearly in that light quite yet. But this should be the direction we're moving. This should be part of what is happening in our hearts. We're able to obey the command not to be troubled. We're able to obey the command to watch out because we have this reassurance. God's purpose to glorify Christ in the preaching of the gospel will not be hindered by persecution. That ought to motivate and comfort and encourage us. Now, that's not to say it's not difficult. When you hear about being betrayed by family, it makes you wonder what is going on that that could happen. Well, what's going on is that the gospel is the basic dividing line. When you're on the side of Christ and family members are not, you're going to find that that is deeper than blood. When there's not open hostility, when there's not a lot of persecution, maybe you fly under the radar, maybe family is okay. But when put to the test, when there's a totalitarian situation, that can all change. And so that, of course, will test our allegiance. Are we more inclined to keep peace with our family or are we more inclined to bear witness to Christ? Does our attachment to Christ go deeper than our attachment to blood? It needs to, it ought to, but does it? All of these commands put our hearts to the test. But there's another command, and this one comes with at least two forms of reassurance under the need for endurance. When they arrest you, verse 11, when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate. So there's the command, do not worry or premeditate what you will speak. And there's two reassurances given about that. One is that the Spirit will give you what you need to speak. And the other is that salvation is waiting at the end for those who endure. So let's think about each of those elements. What is this talking about? Do not worry, do not premeditate what you will speak. Well, it's not saying don't get your Sunday school lesson ready ahead of time. Don't be prepared to give an answer. Don't think or study. It's not saying neglect study, neglect preparation. It's saying in times of persecution, when you're called upon to give an answer, Don't stay up all night before your trial thinking of what to say. And why not? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. But one big reason is if you're sitting up thinking about what to say, just knowing our hearts, knowing our weakness, you're very likely to think about what could I say that would satisfy them? What could I satisfy them and say that would get me off the hook here? And that's not where our focus should be. Our focus should not be on getting off the hook, on getting out of this situation. Our focus should be on bearing witness. But it is also a very high-pressure situation. I mean, you're being called upon to answer for your faith. That's stress. What do you need to bear witness then? You need confidence. You need the confidence that the Lord is with you, that the Holy Spirit will help you to speak and to speak well. John Calvin was so persuaded of the truth of this that when they received the testimonies of the martyrs, I don't know if everybody's aware of this, but from Switzerland at the training academy, Calvin sent hundreds of young men into France to preach the gospel. And many of them were arrested, were tried, were mistreated. Many of them were executed. And in prison awaiting either trial or sentencing or the fulfillment of the sentence, many of them were able to write testimonies as to what they believed and what they said. And they would try to send those to Calvin. And Calvin would disseminate them. Calvin would promote them and publish them. And even though he was Calvin, and even though everybody would have accepted if he tweaked or edited their statements a little bit, he didn't like to tweak or edit them because he felt that the Holy Spirit had given them what they ought to say in their specific circumstances of being persecuted, based on this verse and the parallel passages. So in times of persecution, when family turns against us, when authorities frown upon us, when beatings and even worse are really live options for us, What's our confidence? What's our help? That the Holy Spirit is with us. That he will help us to know what to say. Indeed, that he will speak through us so that it's not even us really talking. It's the Holy Spirit taking over and helping, enabling us to bear witness to Christ. Now you might think, hold on a moment, this is specific to that period of persecution, right? That doesn't apply To all times. Well, we're not talking about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the sense that produced Scripture, first of all. But second, this is a general principle, and that's pretty easy to prove. Mark gives us this guidance, Mark gives us this instruction here in context of the disciples' question about the temple being destroyed. But Matthew gives it to us in a different context, in context of the disciples being sent out to proclaim. The name of Christ. So this part of the passage is very clearly a general principle that applies to this situation, but more widely as well. Now, here again, we see this tension or this contrast between the Lord Jesus telling us things are going to be ter- terrible. Don't worry about it. Don't let it get to you. Because look again at verse 13. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Oh, that sounds great. You will be hated by everyone. Nobody will like you. Yikes. But he builds in a comfort to that statement. Why is that? For my name's sake. Well, now I can face that. Now I can accept that. Now I can embrace it. If he were to say, everybody hates you because you're just that bad of a person, now that would be hard to take. But when he says, everybody will hate you for my name's sake, well, now that's worth it. But it's asking us again, it's searching, it's testing our hearts, it's asking us to weigh the balance. Here's Christ's name, Christ's reputation, the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Here's being universally despised and rejected. Which weighs more? Which counts for more in your heart? Is it even a question? Can you doubt The being hated by everybody flies up. It's light. It's worthless compared to the name of Christ. And then he adds this other reassurance. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, that is part of the general principle. That's part of what's given in Matthew in a different context. And so you can relate it. Those who cling to Christ to the end. To the end of what? Well, to the end of persecution. To the end of their lives. To the end of the world. Whatever it may be that falls upon you. To the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. If you persevere to the end. You will be delivered. Does that mean none of these bad things will happen? No. You'll still get a beating in the synagogue. Your family will still betray you. You still will be hated by everybody. Those things are coming. Those things are going to happen. But there will be deliverance. It's not deliverance from experiencing bad things. It's a deliverance from out of them into something greater, into something bigger. Salvation is there at the end of endurance. Now, he's not saying you have to endure to the end to earn your salvation. But those who have been saved, those who have been brought into communion with Christ, well, they're not going to fall away. They're not going to give up before the end. They will endure to the end. So these are the commands. Do not be troubled. Watch out. Do not premeditate, but also the reassurances. The end is not yet. The gospel witness will be given. The Spirit is with us. And the end of all of this, the outcome is the experience of salvation, the joy of entering into the triumph, the victory, the glory of Christ without end and without mitigation. Amen.